What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. I am your host, Kayla Taylor, and we are on season two, episode 40. And of course, you know, I start off each episode of the week by thanking you guys for supporting last week's episode. It means a lot. I'm going to be honest and transparent. I didn't feel the strongest about last week's episode. I really wasn't feeling the greatest, but I pulled through and put out an episode for you guys. I wasn't sure if it was one of my stronger ones, but you guys seemed to love it. The plays, you guys took to the episode instantly. I got a lot of plays within the first couple of days. So I appreciate the love and keep sharing on your social media and keep putting your friends onto this podcast. It really means the most. So let's get right into this episode because I have a lot to get into per usual. So I'm going to start off by talking about the news that Black Panther Wakanda Forever is shutting down production until 2022 so Letitia Wright can have more recovery time after she sustained an injury on set. I don't remember a whole lot of details about her injury, but I do remember when news broke that she did get injured. It just seems like the Black Panther cast and crew have been going through a lot between Chadwick's passing, you know, this injury, and trying to navigate how they're going to tell the story without Chadwick you know, seems to be difficult. And some of the controversy about Letitia Wright herself and her views on this vaccine have just been, you know, muddying up this this sequel. So I'm hoping that with the extra time, they can really focus and and put forth a solid sequel. I know it's going to be hard. I, I For me personally, I'm trying to not be super hard about the film when it comes out because they are in a really difficult spot here with trying to navigate the story without Black Panther. So, you know, I'm going to be sensitive to that fact. And I I hope that everybody else who does what I do, where they review movies, take it easy on them as well, because this is not an easy thing to do. Moving on from Leticia Wright, it was announced that Ariana Grande was cast as Glinda the Good Witch in the upcoming adaption of Wicked, which is a dream role of hers. And of course, I had to laugh at people, you know, hating on the choice, saying that she wasn't a good fit for the role. Because I think a lot of people forget that about Ariana's background and how she started off in Broadway. She literally got her start on 13, which is a Broadway show. So it's funny to me when people don't think she's capable of doing certain roles like that. I mean, I know she got popping because of Nickelodeon. But if you do your research, you know that she comes from Broadway. And with a voice like hers, you know she's had to have some kind of training like that. I mean, her voice, her range is incredible. So I think this is a great fit. I am glad that Ariana is getting back into acting a little bit more. She's got this coming up. She was just in a movie for Netflix called Don't Look Up. Her role in that film is short, but I always felt like she was a a pretty good actress and obviously her music career blew up and so that became the focus. And I think over the last few years, she's given us tons of music, great music at that. And I think she deserves a break from music for a little bit to, you know, go and explore other passions. She's got her makeup line that's coming out this month, I think next week. Now she's, you know, getting into acting again. So I think that this was a great decision for her, especially because you don't want to oversaturate the music. I can tell a lot of people were getting in that, getting in that space with certain artists where the artist starts putting out a lot of music. They're everywhere constantly and people start to get tired of them. And Ariana was kind of starting to get there around the Thank You Next era because, like I said, she's been very consistent with music. And for me, I didn't mind it. I love her. I love her music. 
But you know how some people can be, they get like that. And so I think it's a good idea for her to kind of take a break from music, rest with that and kind of do other things. And then eventually she can come back to music and, and things like that. I am disappointed that we won't get a Positions tour because I really love that album. It's my favorite out of, out of the trilogy. But I'm hopeful that whenever she does go back on tour, she does perform some of my favorite songs from that album. It kind of sucks when an artist doesn't do like... um a direct tour for a certain album or you miss it because by the time they go on their next tour another album is out and they're more focused on doing that album and they'll maybe perform a couple of their old hits but you won't ever get to hear the deep cuts that you love from the album so I'm hoping that when she does go on her next tour whenever that is she does tour a lot of the music from positions because I think it's a great album I think it deserved more promotion more singles more music videos but you know it is what it is Speaking of new roles being announced, it was also announced that Gal Gadot, I think that's how you pronounce her name, will be playing the evil queen in a new live action version of Snow White. I believe this is about the second live action they've done. They, they did one with Kristen Stewart, I believe, in 2012, and there was controversy surrounding that film that I won't get into. And now they're doing another one. Call me biased, it could be because... Lana Perea did such an amazing job with that role for years on Once Upon a Time. But I feel like, I know she's probably trying to get out of that role. She played that role for like six or seven years. I really feel like she was chosen, She, I, I kind of wish that she was chosen for the role instead just because I feel like she provided such duality to that role. Like she made the evil queen more more than you got from the standard cartoon or fairy tale version of it. She brought a lot of life and I guess humanity to the role. It was her her main slogan on that show was, you know, evil's not born, it's made. And I think that she showed that with the evil queen there was a lot of gray area. There wasn't just black and white. And she's a phenomenal actress too, and I feel like Gal is limited in her acting ability. I think she plays Wonder Woman pretty well. Um, the only other thing I've seen her in other than that was her role in Fast and Furious. I don't think she's the most skilled actress. And I think because I watched Once Upon a Time and I was a fan of that show and Lana Perea gave what she gave to that role, I'm expecting a more skilled actress for a role like the Evil Queen. And I don't know if Gal has it in her to truly bring that evilness to the role I feel like she's a little too sweet I could be wrong I probably won't go and see this film but I do wish that they maybe chose a stronger actress even if it wasn't Lana to play that role because the evil queen is just so she's such an interesting character and I feel like to play evil like that kind of like Angelina Jolie with Maleficent she brought a lot of humanity to that role and it became more than the fairy tale version of Maleficent this is a human well I guess technically Maleficent is not a human, but this is a this is a character that's more than just evil. They weren't always evil. There was a side to them before these events took place to kind of make them become that way. And I think you, like I said, you need a, an actress like Lana Perea or even Angelina Jolie, because I think she's a great actress. You need an actress like that to really play that role in a believable way, because there is a reason why so many people, including myself, loved the evil queen on that show she was evil but it that show allowed the evil queen to be more than just evil it allowed us to see her past and how she got that way and her redemption and all of those things so 
I don't know about Gal Gadot as the evil queen, but I will, I won't be watching the film to see how it turns out, but I will be paying attention to what a lot of other people have to say about the movie to see if she pulled it off. Speaking of Angelina Jolie, that reminds me of The Eternals. Now, I haven't seen the movie yet. I do plan on seeing it this Friday. I'm avoiding spoilers. Thankfully, so far, the spoilers haven't been crazy. I did read one, and that was like weeks before the movie was even set to come out that I was actually annoyed leaked. But other than that, I've been able to avoid the film. I know, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, which you can't always go by, but they didn't have the, the best score for the film but on twitter i'm seeing a lot of people say differently they really enjoyed the film my best friend saw the film last weekend and he enjoyed it so i can't really go by rotten tomatoes because you know sometimes there's bias in there or you know the person reviewing the films don't really know a whole lot about marvel or they don't know a whole lot about the genre that they're they're reviewing and so it's like i said there's a lot of bias involved a lot of politics so i'm gonna see the movie and see for myself and of course i'm gonna review it next week for you guys i also have to watch dune i'm behind on a lot of my movie and tv stuff i'm trying to get back to that it's just been a time so i'm just trying to get back into the swing of things and really keep up with you know music which i don't think i'm lacking on that part but really getting in touch with the tv and movies again but I will be getting behind this mic next week and let you guys know how I feel about the Eternals. Moving on from the Evil Queen and Gal Gadot and Angelina Jolie, the Wu-Tang show has been renewed for a third and final season at Hulu. Again, like I said, I've been slacking on my TV. I think I have one more episode left of season two of the show. Um, I was expecting the show to maybe last for four or five seasons. I felt like they had a lot of... Um, source material to work with but it's like my dad said I think the most important Wu-Tang album is 36 Chambers so as long as they're able to dive into this album which with season three they're going to be able to do I guess that's all that matters they don't really need to go into the following albums like Wu-Tang Forever and I guess all of the solo um careers but that would have been interesting to see to see how because obviously we, we saw it play out in real life but it's really hard to have a group of so many members and then some of them start to break out as solo artists and they get a taste of what it's like to make their own music and then going back into a group and trying to allow someone like RZA to control the sound whereas in their solo career they have more of a say in the music they want to make that can be very frustrating and from what my dad tells me that those are a lot of the issues that played out um, with Wu-Tang so it would have been interesting to see that play out on the show but like I said 36 Chambers is really the the most important body of work for Wu-Tang so if they're gonna have a show about anything it should be about this album and they'll be able to conclude that story with season three. I'll go into like a general my general thoughts next week once I finish the last episode for season two but pretty much I felt like it it the show picked up in season two around towards the end when they finally started getting into the music I think season one I didn't mind the fact that it wasn't fully about the music because I love a good origin story and I feel like season one did a really solid one but I felt like season two dragged a lot for most of its time and there are certain things that they could have got to a little bit quicker than they did so season three they'll probably speed things up a little bit they'll they'll do a lot of catching up on certain things that could have been done in season two Either way, I'm excited to see how the last season of this show plays out. Moving on from Wu-Tang, I do have to give a little bit of an update about my thoughts about Queens. 
So if you listened to last week's episode, I got into the first episode of Queens, which is a show starring Eve and Brandy and Aturi Naughton. And so just a little refresher, if you don't remember, my main criticism of that first episode was that they didn't spend enough time in the 90s and giving a solid background to each of the women in the group and, and why they fell out the way they did. Well, in the second and third episodes, they definitely made up for that. In the second episode, they dive right in into how the women formed the group, how Butter Pecan came into the group because she wasn't originally a part of the group, which makes sense when you see their dynamic. You can tell that, you know, Brandy's character, Eve's character, and Naturi Naughton's character, they all had like a solid friendship. And you could tell that Butter Pecan was always kind of like the outlier in the group. You can tell that she naturally wasn't a rapper too. That That's very obvious. And so they really dove into how, you know, Butter Pecan came into the group, you know, the role that she played, why they fell out. And of course, it's the tale as old as time. They signed a bad deal. They weren't getting the money that they should have been getting. Jealousy amongst the group. It's the typical tale of why groups don't work and last, both girl groups and um, boy groups as well. So what they did in episode two is really what they should have shown us in episode one, but I'll take it. I think it makes up for a lot of the things that I was saying. Also, spoiler alert, I did highlight on the fact that I did not love the group name Nasty Bitches. And by the third episode, they decide that, hey, you know, we're grown women now. Some of us are married. We have kids. We're really not nasty bitches anymore. We're queens, hence the title of the show. And I think that's more fitting. It just didn't feel like a name that should have stuck or should have been a long-term group name. And I'm glad that I picked up on this. And clearly that's where the writers were heading as well. And they changed the name to Queens. I think that's more fitting. Now, while I do love the flashbacks, there are there is a lot of jumping around. And sometimes that can be a little jarring when you're trying to follow the story. Because, you know, first we're back in 1999. Now we're back here. We're back there. Um, but I, I am glad they're doing the flashbacks because, like I said, it allows for the audience to know more of the background information. And it also allows us to see how the current storylines are playing out and also how they connect to one another. I think the most interesting storyline so far that I'm really like involved in, well, not really involved in, but like I'm interested in, I'm intrigued in with is um, the Brandy storyline with, you know, who's the father of her child because there's this mystery we finally find out in episode three which I won't reveal in case you guys are behind on the show but finally it's revealed and I'm not gonna lie in the beginning I thought who the father ended up actually being was him but then there was a period of time where I was thinking it was someone else because the the writers were kind of trying to sway the audience into believing that it was this other guy and finally we find out I also do think that the person who ends up being her father is going to end up dying because in the first episode towards the end he does get shot and you don't find out anything else that happens there like I said there's a lot of time jumping in the first episode by the time you get to the end there's a six month time jump and then when you start episode two you realize that okay the time jump happened in the end of the first episode but now we're back six months we're six months back now so we still don't know who shot him and they really haven't touched up on that storyline again. So like I said, they're, the order in which they're telling things is a little messy. It's a little all over the place and it's hard to keep up with because at the end of one episode, they may touch on a 
big plot line that happens in the future, but then in the next episode, they don't touch on it again. They don't, they don't do with what, how to get away with murder did so well, which is they would always do like a time jump. And then they tell you bits and pieces of the past until you get to what's supposed to be the future when you start the season. So for an example, in the season that Wes dies and the very first episode, you see a house on fire. And you see Annalise standing in front of this house. You don't know much else. And then that's how the episode starts. And then within like the first, the next like two minutes, you go back to the past and you see the events of, you watch the events unfold to how we got to Annalise standing in front of the house on fire. And then before the end of each episode, you learn a little bit more. So it becomes Annalise is standing in front of a house on fire to now she's near an ambulance and they're rolling a dead body into the back of the ambulance. You have to figure out who the dead person is, which, spoiler alert, ended up being Wes. I hope that made sense. So How to Get Away with Murder was really strong in that it gave you bits and pieces of what happened in the past before you get up to the future and now you have the whole story. And with Queens, they're kind of jumping all over the place. They're not touching again on the shooting. They're focusing on other things. So I feel like the order in which they tell the story outside of the flashback, the flashbacks that they've been showing us can be done a little bit better. But I will say a lot of my criticisms from the first episode have been improved so far. Each episode is getting better and better. And I really do hope that ABC sticks by the show and they really give it a chance. I think a lot, I think these days... We don't really give shows a fighting chance. We're too focused on ratings. We've always been focused on ratings, but it seems to be a lot worse now. And I think that we've seen examples of shows like, what's the name of that show that got saved by Netflix? Um, Manifest, where it was trending every week. People were invested in the show. And you have to also remember, which I'm glad they count, they factor in DVR, and, and, and things like that for and on demand, which they think they give for the first seven days. A lot of people work. A lot of people have busy lives. They can't be glued in front of the TV and watch a show live every week. It's just, unless you're in high school, you're not a working adult, you're retired. It's very hard to do that. Even when you are retired, you may have other things going on in life. You may be very active going to the movies, hanging out with friends. You may not always be home. So I think that I wish that these networks factor that into account. Yes, we factor in the DVR and the on-demand views, but a show like Manifest seemed to be very popular. I never watched it. So when they canceled it, of course people were upset because they're like, hey, I love the show. I was watching the show. And the show was also performing very well on Netflix because they had the first two seasons on there. So I feel like it should be more than ratings that are factored into whether a show lives or dies. Obviously, ratings mean more commercials and ads and, and more money. I get that. But like I said, their streaming numbers also can help you out. The fact that it was one of, it was in the top 10 list of um, Netflix shows and, and content says a lot. So when once Fox decided they, I think it was Fox, they no longer wanted anything to do with the show, Netflix at first said they didn't want anything to do with it either, but once they realized how popular the show was for their streaming service, they decided to pick it up. So I feel like those are examples that should show networks that, hey, why don't you just really give a show a fighting chance? There are a lot of great shows that we look back on and say, hey, their first season wasn't really the greatest, but 
we allowed the show to grow and evolve. We allowed these the writers to get better, the storylines to get better, the characters to become stronger. There are a lot of shows I can think of that are like that. One Tree Hill comes to mind. There were a lot of good moments in the first season, but the first season of One Tree Hill overall was kind of boring. It really picks up steam in the second season. And if it, if this show came on today and they had canceled it after the first season, we would have never been able to witness the greatness of that show. There were a lot of great moments that happened after the first season. And had they had canceled the show and have been as harsh as we are with shows today, we would have never seen that. So circling back to my main point, which is that I hope that ABC really does stick with Queens because it does have a lot of potential and a lot of the issues that I even expressed with the show have already kind of been improved by episode two and three. So I'm hoping that it sticks around. Speaking of shows getting better, I have to get into Batwoman. Now last week, I think it was last week, I talked about a lot of the controversy surrounding the show with Ruby Rose and all that the other bullshit going on and for me I feel like Batwoman has always kind of been a work in progress to me Ruby Rose was not the strongest actress but there were elements of the show that I feel like if given time they can improve on now with season two and season three we have a new actress playing Batwoman a stronger actress and I feel like the storylines are just now starting to get to where they need to be Obviously, there are still things that the show needs to work on. I think they need stronger villains. I think the strongest villain they've ever really had so far is Alice. And now Alice is starting to become like an anti-hero. They're trying to redeem her character slowly but surely. And if they're given a season four or even a season five, I wouldn't be surprised if the show ends with Alice's death because they're already starting to kind of foreshadow that with a lot of her mental health getting so much worse. But that's one thing I feel like they still need to improve on, choosing better villains. I don't know much about Batwoman from the comics, but I'm almost positive that she has really interesting and intriguing villains. I'm pretty sure some of the villains she shares with Batman, because in the story that they're telling on the Arrowverse, Batman has disappeared. So he's left without a trace, which means a lot of his unfinished business is now Batwoman's business. And while I don't mind her battling some of Batman's villains, which she's already sort of kind of doing, I want her to have her own really great villain that's just hers alone, has nothing to do with um, Batman. So that's one thing I think the show really needs to work on. Right now they're focusing on a lot of the characters' personal lives and not so much um, the Batwoman stuff, which they're fleshing out the Ryan character really well. Sophie has improved as a character, and I really like the way their characters are heading they look like pretty much, I think it's safe to say that eventually their characters will be getting together. It's kind of a slow burn right now, but I like the way the writers are handling this because for so long, Sophie has been in the closet. She was married to a man that she had no feelings for. She finally came out to her mother and now she's starting to live her life the way she wants to. So I think that it was important that they focused on fleshing out a, a lot of those, well, not fleshing out, but kind of, what's the word? being realistic about Sophie's process before just putting her in a relationship with a woman is important and it's it makes it more realistic. She obviously was in love with Kate, the original Batwoman for so long. Now they have a little bit of closure, they're not together. So I really do think it was important for Sophie to kind of date around and kind of find herself before she gets into a relationship with Ryan or really with anybody, it just makes more sense. So I think the writers are doing that pretty well. They've introduced Batwing, and even that, I enjoy how they're handling that. They're not having Luke 
jump right into being, you know, a sidekick. He's got a lot of his own PTSD from being, you know, shot by the police last season that he's still dealing with and has to work out. I do wish that they put a little bit more focus back on Mary. She's been, her storyline has been lacking so far, but we're only in what, episode three or four. So we have time. Obviously they're teasing a pairing between Luke and Mary, which I'm also here for. I think that would be really cute. But yeah, I think the main criticism I have for Batwoman, which has kind of been my criticism throughout the show so far, is that they need to just get better about picking villains and focusing more on the Batwoman stuff and have a healthy mix of the personal li- Ryan's personal life and also her duties as Batwoman because I feel like her personal life is overshadowing her duties as Batwoman and that's why we watch these superhero shows. It's not really for the love interests or the love stories or the personal life, you know, the sides of their personal life. Though those are great, addi- great additions, we also, especially for a show that's still kind of new, we want to focus more on the superhero stuff. Like with The Flash... We knew a lot about his personal life. You know, he he dealt with his feelings with Iris. We saw him date other people, but that wasn't the main focus early on. It was the origin story of the Flash. It was you know how he adjusted to now being a superhero. All those things. So I think that Batwoman could improve on that front. But I do hope that they give this show more of a chance because I think it's gotten slightly better. You know, since Ruby Rose left, and I think I'm also excited for Armageddon because this will be Javatia Leslie's first time being involved in a crossover. And sometimes these crossovers are good for these new superhero shows because it allows them to interact with the other superheroes. And it also allows them to be involved in a lot of the action that goes with being a superhero. So I'm excited to see how this, you know, comes together. Also, Black Lightning is going to be in this crossover, even though Black Lightning has ended. And I did read a rumor that if Batwoman was canceled after the season, they did still plan on having her pop up in other shows. And I guess that's what they're doing with Black Lightning. And it'll be great to see her, Batwoman, a lot of the Black cast from Batwoman interact with some of the Black cast on The Flash and on Black Lightning. So I'm excited to see um, Iris meet Sophie because I feel like they would just get along really really well so I'm looking forward to that I think next week is when the first part airs and it comes back with the flash since he's now the center of these crossovers now that arrow um is has ended so I can't wait for that and I'm gonna be sticking with Batwoman because like I said I think the storylines are getting a little bit more interesting and I see an improvement and of course I gotta support my people it's essentially a black cast now so I'm always down to support my people. Speaking of superheroes though, Tom Holland has recently claimed that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield aren't coming back for No Way Home and Tom Holland is not the most trustworthy source. This is the guy who leaks almost everything. I think when it comes to this, this is something they really want to keep under wraps. So even though I believe it was definitely a planned stunt when he would leak other things, they're trying their best to keep this under wraps, especially when some of the superhero movies recently have suffered from leaks. I think they're trying to keep this on the hush-hush. I don't believe him. I definitely do think that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield's are going to be coming back for No Way Home. If they surprisingly aren't, I think they they missed the ball. I think this is a great opportunity. Like this in this Marvel phase, we're really playing with time in different universes. So I think this is a great opportunity 
for them to do this, especially because now Spider-Man is going to be, you know, moving back to Sony and not a Marvel thing. I think it's important that they go out with a bang and this would be a great idea, but I, I certainly believe they're in this film. I don't believe Tom Holland for a second. And there are a bunch of people that agree with me. A lot of us believe he's lying and that he is going to be, that they are going to be making an appearance for No Way Home. This is one of the Marvel movies I'm really looking forward to. I'm, I think the second film ended super crazy. It left me on the edge of my seat. I remember being in the theaters after the film ended saying, I can't wait a year for this story to continue. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Spider-Man overcomes a lot of those challenges that he faces by the end of the, the film. And then when the trailer came out, the first trailer before it came out, I'm like, yeah, this movie is going to be, this is going to be a, a great Spider-Man film. I think Tom Holland is going to be the first Spider-Man to ever have successfully, to successfully have three great films. Because the first one was really good, the second one is even better, and I think the third one is probably going to be even better than the second. So I think that's a accomplishment in itself. It's kind of like the Dark Knight trilogy. Either way, I'm super excited for No Way Home. I really am. So the director of Squid Game confirms that it's coming back for a second season, which is not a surprise. I think a lot of us knew that it was going to come back for a second season after the success of the first one and the way that the first season ended with, you know, it kind of ended open-ended. And so I would have been really shocked if they decided, eh, we're not going to do a second season. I don't think that a second season was necessarily needed. However, because I enjoyed the first season and I think that there's potential, go depending on which storyline they decide to go with, there is potential for a second season. So I will be locked in for a second one. I really enjoyed the first one. It's different than the content I usually watch. And, you know, lately I've been trying to, I've been trying to force myself to watch different types of shows because I find myself watching a lot of, you know, similar ones and so it's when you kind of step out of your norm that you find something really good and that's what happened um for me for squid game so i'll be locked in for a second season moving on from squid game i think it was maybe yesterday maybe a couple of days ago vin diesel apparently asks for the rock to reprise his role for fast 10 and i was shocked by this because I think a lot of us who have been paying attention to a lot of that drama know just how bad The Rock and Vin Diesel have fallen out. I really don't think that The Rock is going to be taking this this branch, this olive branch, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, The Rock was very angry by how certain things played out in the last film he was involved in. And also, he now has his own spinoff series, Hobbs and Shaw. I think they're making a second film. The first one performed well. It wasn't a great film, but it performed well. It's The Fucking Rock. They're going to make a sequel and he doesn't need the fast the fast franchise anymore. And honestly, his character has kind of successfully been written out of the main story. Now, obviously, he was a big part of the fast film, so they can always bring him back, but there's not a 100% need to. I think that the fact that Vin Diesel is more so demanding him. It's not even asking him. He's pretty much said, you have a duty to come back and finish this film out with your brothers, essentially. I think that they need The Rock more than The Rock needs them. Now, I think that the last film, which I actually enjoyed, I, I that the Fast 
franchise is like a guilty pleasure of mine. If they can keep putting out movies until they're blue in the face, I will be watching every single one. I love the movies. Do I think they st- they still need to keep making them? No, but I will still watch them. I think they need him more than The Rock needs them. I don't know if because they're coming towards the end because I think they're they're making two more, 10 and 11, I think. I think. Don't quote me on that. So I I think that maybe they feel like they need him because now we're coming towards the end. Once you come towards the end of a long-running series like that, obviously you want to come full circle and you need Hobbs to do that. And maybe the movie company felt like we need The Rock again because he's a, a bona fide movie star now. He's a gar- he's a bankable actor. We need him to come back because John Cena, we tried to bring him in to kind of give the audience the feel of The Rock, you know, pro wrestler and pro wrestler. I, I saw what they were trying to do and maybe they felt like John Cena just didn't give what he needed to for the role and they want The Rock to come back because the way that both Vin Diesel and The Rock have spoken about each other, I'm surprised that Vin Diesel is even offering that. So I think that his hand was forced. I don't think it was necessarily Vin Diesel's choice. But I think it's a situation of two big egos wanting to run the show. And because Fast is Vin Diesel's baby, he's always going to have this absolute final say. And The Rock didn't like that. And so the compromise was, okay, well, I'm leaving Fast. They're going to create a spinoff series for me that I get to oversee and have the final say because he's the executive producer. I think both him and Jason Statham. So I don't see The Rock coming back. I mean, does he really need to? Like I said, Hobbs and Shaw, he's doing Black Adam. He's doing a million other things. He's trying to be a rapper now. He should give that part up because <laughs> I wasn't feeling that verse on that Tech 9 song that TikTok is overhyping. But I'll be surprised if The Rock decides to come back. I shouldn't be, uh, on one hand, I was surprised. I shouldn't have been though, because lately Vin Diesel has been addressing the situation between him and The Rock. So I guess it was only natural for the next thing to be, hey, come back to the film. I know that The Rock has patched things up with Tyrese and, and the other actors. I think really his only issues were with Tyrese and the other actors. I don't think Luda ever publicly said anything. I don't think any of the other actors publicly said anything. I think it was just Tyrese and Vin Diesel. And I think those were who he had the real issues with. Well, he pro- well let's be real. Tyrese included himself in that. I think The Rock's real main issue was with Vin Diesel and Tyrese was just trying to be loyal to the Fast crew, and that's why he was reacting the way he did. But I do know that they patched things up. They're fine. I don't think the same thing could be said for Vin Diesel and The Rock. I mean, he called them a bunch of candy asses. We'll see. I think the writer in me would love for The Rock to come back just because it's a nice little bow on the series. But also at the same time, for the reasons I already mentioned, it makes sense for him to not come back. We'll see. Either way, I'll be watching Fast 10. Moving on from the drama from the Fast and Furious uh, franchise. Apparently, Big Bird went and got himself vaccinated from COVID. Of course, this sparked a whole bunch of backlash, which I think I, I find funny. You're arguing with Big Bird on Twitter about getting vaccinated. Ted Cruz, that's who, I, that's who I'm really throwing shade at, Ted Cruz. You, you, you look f- fucking ridiculous. You're arguing back and, well, not really arguing back and forth. You're subtweeting a, a, a fictional character on, on Twitter who's just trying to promote the vaccine and trying to be a good example for little kids. I, you know, some people may think it's stupid because he is a fictional character, but I like what they're trying to do here. You know, a lot of that audience, they're too young for the vaccine right now. 
but you're never too young to have a fear. And I'm pretty sure there are little kids that don't love getting shots and who are fearful of the vaccine, who may have adults around them that, that talk negatively about this thing. So to have a big pop culture figure like Big Bird, whether he's real or not, say, hey, I'm vaccinated and I'm encouraging you to be vaccinated as well, I think is a great thing. And people who are against the vaccine may see it as, oh, this is another way for them to try to force this thing on us. But I think that we expect a lot of public figures, celebrities, cartoons, you know, anybody in media to be these role models because a lot of young impressionable kids do look up to these figures and, they, and they'll follow what they say because they don't know any better. So I think when you use that for good, you use your platform to inform people, it's a positive thing. That's the most positive way you can use your platform. And so I love that they have Big Bird being the one to do so. I imagine Elmo and Cookie Monster are next. But seriously, I, I think that was a smart, it was a smart move. So moving on from those lighthearted topics to something a little bit, well, not a little bit, a lot more serious. I have to talk about it, even though I've been dreading doing so because it really is a sad situation. I do want to start off by sending out my prayers to those who lost loved ones during the tragedy at Astroworld Fest. Now, I knew about this festival for months, obviously, because I am in the podcast world, so it's my job to keep up with things like that. And I knew it was being live streamed. I'm not the biggest fan of Travis Scott, so I didn't really care to really tune in to the actual concert. What I was not expecting the next day when I woke up, however, was to read that eight people were killed in a stampede and that hundreds more were injured. Let me start off because I feel like this whole topic for me is going to be all over the place because I have a lot of thoughts. Let me first start off by saying that Travis Scott should 100% be taking accountability. He is not the only one who should be taking accountability for the situation, but he is one of many. And considering this was his festival, it was his job to make sure that his team provided a safe environment for people to be in. The first mistake or mistakes that were made was the fact that Travis Scott, and I hope I don't say Garland because I'm a huge fan of Travis Garland and they're both named Travis. It'll be easy for me to mix their names up. I'm talking about Travis Scott. So if I do slip, make a slip of the tongue, ignore it. Travis Scott has a huge, not huge, a long history of inciting chaos and violence at his shows. He's been arrested for it before. He's been sued for it before. In fact, one of the many people who sued him is a guy who in 2017 was trampled and injured so badly that he was partially paralyzed. He recently came out and said that he couldn't believe that Travis Scott was still making these stupid decisions because they're not mistakes anymore. I know I said mistakes, but they're no longer mistakes when you keep doing it. You know the disastrous effects of these actions, and yet you keep inciting people to do this. To the point now, even if Travis Scott comes back out years later to perform again, it doesn't matter if he tells his audience not to do it because he these fans... He's created a culture for his fans to do this at his shows. It's too late now for him to fix that. He can put protocols in place. They're still going to try to rush the stage because he okays it. Now, me personally, I couldn't find it in myself to watch a lot of the videos that were posted online because in these videos, apparently, you can hear people calling for help 
and some of the videos that I watch without sound, I see people begging the security to listen to them and to stop the show. Yes, from the stage, Travis Scott may not be able to see everything that's going on. He may not even be able to hear everything because of his in-ears. However, his security was told. So now the security is not doing their job to tell him what's going on or to even say, hey, we're stopping the show. Fuck what Travis Scott says. We're stopping the show because there are dead bodies everywhere. People are literally running and fighting for their lives because they cannot breathe. They're being trampled on and can't go anywhere. They're standing two feet away from someone who's dead on the ground. Literal babies were killed at this thing. High school students, 14-year-olds, 10-year-olds. There's currently a 10-year-old who's in uh, an induced coma because he was trampled so bad. After being on his father's shoulders, his father passes out because he can't breathe and the son falls and is trampled. So I have no sympathy for Travis Scott because he has a history of this. It'd be one thing if he unintentionally incited a crowd, which is, you know, you're so big and you're so popular that fans are just hysterical and they're just doing it of their own accord. But you encourage this. You encourage them to rush the stage. You encourage them to ignore security, to put their hands on security. These people are high on drugs, doing whatever the fuck they want at a show. This is not what concerts are supposed to be for. You go, you enjoy live music, you have a good time with the people you're with, and you go home. You don't trample and kill people. And the other people who need to be held responsible are the people who actually did the stampeding. I understand that there were probably hundreds of them, but considering the show was live streamed, I'm pretty sure you can investigate a few of them. I'm sure you can pick a few of them out. They managed to do so for the January 6th riots. They can do the same thing for this. So I'm really not trying to hear Travis Scott's fans talk about, oh, you know, trying to make excuses for him, using other artists as examples that have nothing to do with the situation. Let me tell you something. Michael Jackson was the biggest act in the world. The man could stand on stage for two minutes, not say a word, and the fans would go wild. I've seen it. Not in person, but I've seen video. I've seen clips on YouTube. The man stood there for a full minute, said not a word, just stood there, and they screamed their heads off. Hysterical. And I have never heard of a stampede at a Michael Jackson concert, as big as he was. Because as the artist, you control and you conduct that energy. What you give to them, they give back. So Travis Scott is responsible, yes. I have no problem saying that. Of course, everybody who are involved, who was involved, are now trying to kind of place the blame on each other and not take accountability. I already read a report saying that the cops who were investigated had apparently told investigators that they had warned Travis Scott about the dangers of the security, that there's a security issue. One of the security guards working that night has come out and done an interview saying that they were severely understaffed. So I already see people copping, please. But to be honest, Travis Scott is at fault. The people doing the stampeding are at fault. The security team are at fault, and so is the medical team, because apparently there were medical personnel there who didn't even know how to perform basic CPR. So someone didn't do their fucking job here all around. Oh yeah, Live Nation, them too. And of course, apparently the lawsuits are building so high they had to put out a freeze. So far in one of the lawsuits I've read, Travis Scott, Live Nation, and Drake are being named in a lawsuit. So Travis Scott is in big trouble. And so are the people involved in Astro World Fest. It's a fucking mess. And I already said this on Twitter, but I'll say it again for this, the sake of this podcast. I already see how this is playing out and some of the things I said would happen are already happening. He's just a little too late now. 
But I said, you know, the first thing he's going to do is offer to pay for the funeral costs of the people who died, which Roddy Rich, who was one of the guests at Astro World Fest, did immediately. He was one of the first ones to do so. You know how that looks? The own headliner of the event didn't even offer to do that first. A guest did. So he looks even worse. And that little apology video and statement he did, not enough. So I said he was going to do that. I also said he would offer to, to pay for the expenses of the people who are severely injured in the hospital. I think he's going to eventually come out with a more scripted apology. And then eventually he's just probably going to go ghost for a year. That album that was supposed to come out, Utopia, that's not coming out anytime soon. He's going to take a year off until things feel safe again before he comes back out. It's a tale as old as time. Every time something like this happens, this is exactly how PR plays out for them. Same with the baby. And then in a, in a year, he'll probably come out and do an interview with a respectable interviewer to try to rehab his image. And by the way, when it rains, it pours because some of the most horrifying stories about Travis Scott have come out. Some of them I had already heard. Some were new to me, including apparently the fact that he left his former manager to die when he was having a seizure. Other people at past concerts who have been injured and, and severely hurt, paralyzed, are coming out with their own stories. So it's kind of hard to have sympathy for a person who has a history of this. I remember having friends who went to, I think, his show to promote Astroworld back in 2018. I remember how, how their stories about how crazy that show was. So for to me, this was something that could have been completely avoidable. And I think that's why it angers so many of us especially when so many of the people who died were so young. They were babies, essentially. It's hard to even think that anybody even feels any real guilt because it had to take eight people dying for something to change with the way that he conducts the energy at his concerts. Because like I said, Travis Scott is known for this. So it took eight people dying for you to feel remorse, to potentially change the way you act when you perform. It's hard to believe that you're truly remorseful. And it's already been announced that Post Malone is replacing Travis Scott at Day in Vegas, I believe. He was set to perform there. I don't know when Day in Vegas is, but I know he was set to perform there. So really, this is just a, a sad situation and a, a, a real tragedy. And like I said, again, I'm praying for those who lost people at Astral World Fest. I'm praying for those who are still suffering from their injuries as a result of the events that happened at Astro World Fest as well. And hopefully this changes things and we have better security issues, not security issues, better security at these types of concerts. It's kind of why I don't love standing arenas. I've only been to one concert where I had to stand up at and I felt uncomfortable during that night because when the artist left the stage, Fans ran after him and I had to move out of the way so that I wasn't, you know, crushed in that. And ever since then, I said, you know, for me, they're, they're not for me. I would love to see certain artists at Rolling Loud, but again, I don't love the environment at those shows. And I have a good friend of mine who did go to Rolling Loud and felt uncomfortable because of how people would act in those crowds. And especially during COVID, I wouldn't be caught. We already knew that there was little regard for human lives with the way that this world treats black people. And it was proven again during the pandemic. And it's proven yet again after what happened at Astroworld Fest. There's no regard for human lives. 
And it's sad to see things like this play out over and over. But hopefully, not for just Travis Scott, but for any other artist that has a habit of inciting their audience to do things like this. Maybe this is a wake-up call that they needed. And hopefully this changes things. That's really all I have to say about the situation. So, moving forward from the events that happened at Astro World Fest into some celebrity beef, Kanye recently went on Drink Champs and aired out his frustrations with both Big Sean and John Legend for their lack of support during his presidential run in 2020. Kanye, let's be real, there are a lot of your friends, quote unquote, that didn't vote for you either, that you think did. I think this is just... Maybe those are his real issues with John Legend. I believe there's more with Big Sean than just the fact that he stayed quiet during his presidential run, but Big Sean stayed quiet during the presidential run period, not just for Kanye. He didn't say a thing. I think his real issue is the fact that... Oh, first, let me say what Kanye said. This isn't verbatim, but he pretty much said that signing Big Sean to good music was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life. Which I think is hilarious considering that Big Sean, outside of Kanye, was the only artist really making hits and money for that label. Big Sean carried that label on his back for years. Platinum plaques on top of platinum plaques. Okay? So if you think that signing Big Sean was the biggest mistake, I think you're, you've lost it. But we know Kanye's not all the way there mentally. Because like I said, I can't name another good music artist that really made hits on that label and made money for that label. Off of his debut album alone, Big Sean has a few platinum plaques. I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's probably the best decision, one of the best decisions you made for that label, considering your label is now kind of falling apart and your longest, the longest artist on your label ever left. And that's very telling. Big Sean was on that label for 14 years. He was one of, I think he was the first artist signed to that label. And there are a lot of things that I pretty sure that Kanye has done to screw Big Sean over behind the scenes that because Big Sean has so much respect for Kanye, he won't ever tell. Now, he might get into a few things on the Drink Champs because they've invited him to come onto the show now. But I think Big Sean's too nice. I think he needs to air it out. That's what I would do because I felt like Kanye was disrespectful. So why not get a little disrespectful back? And not only did Big Sean make that label money, I'm pretty sure Big Sean is one of the many rappers who ghost wrote for Kanye. Because y'all do know he don't write his own rhymes, right? So when y'all be trying to clown Big Sean for not being a good writer, nine times out of ten, he probably wrote a lot of stuff for Kanye too that you probably fuck with. Pusha, Big Sean, Drake, Consequence, several others. Probably common too. If you've been on good music for any significant amount of time, you probably wrote for Kanye. So when I got on my podcast a couple of weeks ago and I said, hey, you know, maybe Big Sean and Kanye have gotten over or whatever, there's some tension there. I wasn't wrong. I thought maybe they got over it because, or they were working through it because he was just at Kanye Sunday service, which Big Sean called him out for saying, you said none of this, you were on, you were not on this type of energy when I saw you. But the way Big Sean was venting on Twitter and even in some of his music, I felt like there was an issue there. But it was an issue I didn't think Big Sean would ever really address because it was a respect thing. Kanye did change his life. But now, since Kanye's on this type of time, I feel like Big Sean should be on that type of time too. And I hope he's serious about going on Drink Champs. I'm going to know the tea. That might make me sound messy, but it's true. And I want Big Sean to have a couple of bars for Kanye too. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
But Kanye, he's burning a lot of bridges. A lot of them. Off of Donda alone. Aside from the Drake bullshit. From on Donda alone. Screwing over artists, cutting their parts off of the album, promising them that they were going to be on the album and then taking them off. He's got a lot of bridges he's burned. I don't know how many bridges he's going to keep burning before there's none left to burn. But Big Sean is just the latest. I think John Legend, that relationship was gone the moment he put on that red hat. So I believe his issues with John Legend are really rooted in the fact that uh, because of his presidential run. But I think to include Big Sean in that for the reasons why you don't fuck with him is a reach. And it's kind of selfish because I think there are a lot of real reasons Big Sean could be mad at you that probably are a bigger deal or more serious than your stupid presidential run that you were never going to win anyway. Let's be real. And I like the fact that Big Sean liked a couple of tweets pointing out the fact that, hey, Kim, your own wife, wasn't voting for you either. So I know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Kanye, he struggles with his mental health. Valid, but also struggling with your mental health doesn't excuse you or give you the right to be an asshole. And I think a lot of people try to use that for Kanye. Kanye was an asshole before we even knew about his mental health issues, before he was probably even diagnosed. Kanye's always been an asshole. It's never going to change. So I, I'm not fond of people using the mental health thing as an excuse because people who struggle with mental health, that's an insult to them. Kanye's just an ass. Just, just keep it real. And I'm, I'm tired of people tiptoeing or excusing a lot of his stupid behavior because of who he is. Kanye's not a god, despite what he might want us to think. Okay, he's, he, was, he was great at what he did. Doesn't excuse him to, to behave and act the way he does. And a lot of y'all seem to think so. You think he walks on water. No. So, I mean, I already said this when I reviewed What You Expect last week, but good music is finished out here. Pusha T really is the only active one on that label. Big Sean has left. Tiana Taylor is leaving. She's retiring. So even if she has another album under that contract, she's done. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years, when she comes back to music inevitably, she's probably going to fight to get her way out of that contract. So Pusha T is the only active one on that label. And he's probably only still there because he's the vice president, right? The vice president, the president, something like that. He's on the board there. But who else on good music is really putting out music? There's, there's probably people who are assigned that are just never coming out. But Big Sean was the last active member on that label other than Pusha. And even in a few years, I see Pusha dipping the fuck out too. It's a dying ship. Drake pretty much alludes to that on his Certified Lover Boy album. I see some of your boys sneaking out and escaping. He says it over and over throughout the album when he's, you know, taking shots at Kanye. And the industry is probably thinking the same thing. Good music, it had its good run, it's over. And I think that's why Kanye really is in his feelings about Big Sean. Because he de he declined to renew his contract and he got out and decided to sign his masters. It's not a coincidence that Hit Boy also has issues with him too. So I hope that when Big Sean does drink champs, we get to the root of it. We get to know some stuff of what's going on. I feel like Big Sean has low-key been itching to tell us. So I hope they get right on that Drink Champs episode. I know Big Sean was in Miami a few weeks ago. It's nothing for him to go back and do that episode. I'll be locked in for it. Moving on from Kanye's bullshit, Rick Ross announces that his new album, Richer Than I've Ever Been, is finally dropping December 10th. I felt like earlier in the year, we heard all this talk about this album. He was, you know, going on tons of interviews talking about it, as well as promoting other things. And then all the chatter regarding this album kind of stopped. And I assumed that it wasn't coming out this year anymore. 
I was surprised to see that it's coming out December 10th. I believe that's when Alicia Keys is dropping her double album as well. Rick Ross has mostly been a kind of end of the summer type of artist, like August, you know, September is usually his bag. So I was surprised that um, he's dropping December 10th. You know, Rick Ross, aside from that being his window, he also makes the kind of music that's for the summer. Like, you put on a Rick Ross album, you feel rich, you feel like a boss. That's why his album is titled Richer Than I've Ever Been. He makes really lush and lavish, lavish music. And so it's really fitting for the summer. So I am shocked that he's coming December 10th. But there's always a reason for everything. I'm sure he also wanted to allow Meek and Wale to kind of have their window to promote their stuff before he came out. I'm not the hugest Rick Ross fan. I like handful of songs um, from each of his albums. I'll probably listen just to see which songs I like, and, and I'll probably just focus on five or six of the ones that I do. I am looking forward to hearing his beat selection on this album, though, because Rick Ross is one of those rappers with probably one of the best um, ears for production in the game. I'm sure the usual suspects will make their way onto this album. I'm expecting a Drake feature, especially especially because Rick Ross has been really hyping up the Drake, the, the joint tape between him and Drake, so I'm expecting a Drake feature on this album for sure. Before I get into my album reviews, according to a newly released Sony document, artists like Chris Brown, ASAP Rocky, and a few others were expected to release new albums within the next six months. Travis Scott was included in this, but, you know, because of everything that's been going on recently, I do believe he is no longer dropping his album anytime soon. But artists like Chris Brown and ASAP Rocky do make sense. Chris Brown has been talking about his next album, Breezy, which will be his 10th album, which is, of course, a big deal for any artist to, to make it to 10 albums. A lot of artists don't even make it past six. So that is an incredible feat. We do know the title. We know it's going to be as long as his other albums, which I'm dreading. I am hoping, like I've said before, that it's leaning more in the R&B direction. He's been doing a lot of features that have been more R&B. So I'm hoping that he goes back to his roots for this Breezy album and just gives us really good R&B records. ASAP Rocky is not a shock either. He's been in the public more outside of him dating Rihanna. He's just been... You know, he just put out a the re-release of his mixtape on streaming services. He's been teasing the fact that he's been working on an album. He's been photographed on a music video set. So I do believe that this um, document from Sony is a pretty accurate depiction of what the next six months for their artists are going to look like. Um, Chris Brown has been teasing something for this month. I'm assuming it's the lead single for his album. And he'll probably end up dropping his album in the second quarter of the year. That's kind of what I foresee happening. But that wraps up my music news. Now I'm going to get into what I've been looking forward to getting into all week, which is my first album review, which is Still Over It by Summer Walker. So Still Over It tells the story of the stages of a breakup, but with a twist. It chronicles dealing with a breakup while being pregnant which makes this album Summer's most vulnerable body of work yet. And before I get into all of my technical album review talk, can I just say that I love this album. I have been running it back. Seriously, I get in the car to go to work. I put it on. I leave work to go home. I put it on. I'm chilling in the house. I put it on. I love this album. I've listened to it about over 10 times now. I definitely think that it's a better album than Over It, and I really enjoyed Over It. I think that whew, 
Summer Walker really has this thing on lock. She really does. The emotion on this album is what makes it a stronger body of work than over it. You can't ignore the real pain and raw honesty in the stories she's telling us on this album. The first two songs on Still Over It, Bitter and X for a Reason, are Summer trying to bask in her pregnancy while also dealing with haters speaking negatively about her pregnancy and about the father of her child, aka London on the track who was the executive producer on her, Still, on her Over It album, her debut. Some of these haters are the other mothers of his children. And despite being told about her ex's toxic behaviors and patterns, she defends him against the haters anyway. She'd rather place the blame on them rather than hearing what she knows deep down is the truth. So in the very beginning of this album, you just see her completely being defensive, denying what she knows to be the truth. There are parts of the album where Summer is sort of in denial. She's kind of half in, half out. She knows that her ex is no good, but still wants some part of him. Songs that express this are No Love, Screwin', where she still kind of wants a physical, the physical aspect of the relationship, but not an emotional one because she knows she's going to get hurt and she feels like it's just easier that way. The songs that really hit me hard were the songs that were the acceptance of the truth. Songs like Fourth Baby Mama, Unloyal, and Broken Promises because I think one of the most uncomfortable things you can do, especially in the story that Summer's telling where she's going from being so defensive and, and, and taking on this me and my man against the world mentality to start to accept his flaws and realizing that all the things people have been saying about him are true, they're correct, and knowing that she's risked everything to only have really nothing in the end, that's a really vulnerable place to be in. And when you have vulnerability like that in the music, they just it has to be felt. And people will connect with that. And I think that's why those songs are really the shining moments on this album. The other songs that kind of hit me hard as well were songs where it seems like she's begging him to make it work despite knowing all of the things I already mentioned. Songs like Throw It Away and Reciprocate. And they all just tell the sad story of a young woman who has, like I said, thrown everything away and given her all for a man who really doesn't deserve it at all. Still Over It is just... A beautiful way of telling this story. It's a story we obviously saw play out in real time, but to hear it in the music is very different. It hits you harder, and even if we don't agree with everything that Summer Walker has said and done in this situation, it's hard not to feel for her when you listen to this album. She's just in such a vulnerable place. No Love featuring SZA and Toxic featuring Lil Durk are definitely, are definitely honorable mentions. I can't speak today because I'm just so excited for this album. They're definitely honorable mentions. There were so many great songs to choose from, but I really love these records as well, even if they didn't make my list. And SZA's feature on this record, she stole the show. And Summer, this Summer Walker album is phenomenal. But on this record here, SZA steals the show. Her pen all year, all of her features, her own music have been phenomenal. SZA has really had a great year musically and she just floats on No Love. They're compatible with each other on that record and I really do hope it's the next single. It's projected to be number five on the Billboard Hot 100. This album actually dethrones one of Lemonade's records. Like this this album is, is gonna be a monster and SZA just killed it. I think that Toxic, I wasn't expecting to like it. I wasn't expecting to like Lil Durk's verse, but Lil Durk has had some dope features lately as well. And I just love these records. Like I said, 
to me, I really enjoy them. It was hard to pick a top five. They didn't make the cut, but I did have to take some time to speak about them. By the time you get to the end of the album, you really feel like you've experienced the breakup alongside her. The stark difference between bitter, in which she calls out the other mothers of his children for being bitter and bad mothers, and then you get to fourth baby mama at the end of the album, in which she accepts that she fell for the same mistakes and bad behaviors that the mothers of his other children fell for, and now she's in their shoes and understands the difficult places that they're in. You really hear the start of growth for Summer as we listen to her attempt to grow up emotionally and kind of having to eat her own words. She goes from calling the other mothers of his children bad mothers and they're not raising their kids and they and they want him for clout just to realize that, oh, now I'm in their shoes and what I thought of them isn't necessarily true. He's really to blame. It's such a such a vast difference. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about this album is that you start off this album with Summer in a completely different tone in a different space. Now you get to the end. And it's a woman who's realized everything that she's done wrong in a way. And it's kind of like, yes, she's calling out London on the track for his part, but she's also recognizing her own toxic behaviors in the situation. Summer and the writers she works with are phenomenal because part of what makes Still Over It so emotionally captivating is the writing. She has lines like, quote, Because a house is not a home when no one's there. So alone, no one's there. Should I move on since no one's here? Which really puts in perspective for the listener of what a young broken home is like. And the feeling of a young woman, like I said before, realizing, you know, this person she's given everything to is no longer here. Now it's just herself. I think that's one of the scariest things that happens to anybody once you get out of like a really toxic relationship, only having yourself in the end and now having to work through all of the trauma you may have gone through in that relationship by yourself. Those lines come off of Session 33, another song that I love. And even the way she addresses London's mother on Fourth Baby Mama by saying, quote, I guess that guilt hit hard being gone for so long. That's why she makes excuses for all your wrongs. Now what's the point in keep on having kids if she's just gonna be raising them? That's just pure laziness. Like every line on that song was written in a way where everything has to be heard. Each line hits hard. You have to pay attention to each line. She's really having a conversation with not just London, but his own mother, blaming her for being the way that he is. And it's just this raw way of writing what's actually going on in her life in an unflinching manner that makes the album so captivating. This is what made R&B albums like Mary J's My Life or Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope album so good. Real soul and emotion, and I think that's what's really been missing from R&B. It's just what we jokingly call R&B vibes, where the vibe is good and it, there's the soul is lacking. But it's so great to hear this type of album from a newer artist, because I always love traditional R&B. It's what I grew up on. It's what I was raised on. And I like some of the new music. I love the Bryson Tillers, you know, I love the Snow Allegras, but I feel like some of the soul is missing in the music and Summer Walker really brought that old school feel while still sounding modern on Still Over It. You can tell she's inspired greatly by the R&B acts before her in the way that she writes her music and the production too. This album has less samples than Over It, but the influence is still there. 
There are many great moments for production on this album, and you can tell Summer really has an ear for music. And if you can't already tell by listening, she plays her own instruments too. You can always tell when an artist plays an instrument. For an album that has 20 songs, it never gets tiring or feels like it's run overrun by fillers. Every song sounds like it should be a part of this story. My top tracks from Still Over It are Fourth Baby Mama, of course, Unloyal, Constant Bullshit, Throw It Away, and Insane. So of course I'm going to start off with Fourth Baby Mama, which I kind of got into already. This is most likely on everyone's list, and it should be. This is a highlight off of the album due to Summer's vulnerability and the lyrics. On this track, like I said, she addresses her ex's mother and how the way she mothered him is a major reason for why he treats women the way that he does and how he raises his own kids. There are not a lot of songs with this approach and perspective, so it's a deviation from the norm, and that's what I love about it. Her vocals are very soft, and you can hear how brokenhearted she is. My favorite lines are, quote, I know you ain't care because you always gone. How could you make me spend my whole fucking pregnancy alone? The next song I want to get into is Unloyal featuring Ari Lennox. What really drew me to this song was the production. It's very soulful and having Ari on this track was a great decision. I love this. I hope they do other songs together because they. this is a great collaboration. Summer already did her thing, but Ari's voice is just so soulful and she absolutely skates over this song. Her vocals are heavenly, but what else is new? The saxophone break in the bridge before Ari's verse starts is so stunning. I love live instrumentation, so the moment I heard this song, I knew it was going to be one of my favorites. My favorite lines are, quote, Acting like you paying for shit, broke, with your bow-wow do-rag, outside with your doggy bag, just because I thought that line was hilarious. Also, I loved, quote, Tell me how a grown man so childish, always in Kevin Samuels' comments, Ladies, if a man praises Kevin Samuels, it's a major red flag, run. The next song I wanted to get into is Constant Bullshit. This is just a clear-cut R&B track, and I love that. Summer's vocals sound so angelic and smooth, and I love her harmonies and background vocals on this. The lyrics are also well-written. It's a you niggas ain't shit record, but it has a lot of heart. The strings on this album are so pretty, and they show up again on this song. The beat overall is dope, though, and I love how layered it is. My favorite lines are, quote, Tell me, do you mean it when you say my name? Because it's always constant bullshit when you don't do what you say. And again, you can really hear the influence of past, you know, R&B artists on Summer Walker. And what I really love about those lines is it's kind of like a callback to Destiny's Child, Say My Name, because Destiny's Child kind of created this affirmation of love by referring to your partner, calling them by name. Because on Say My Name, it's, you know, say my name and tell me that you love me if no one is around you. So I know that you're serious because if you're messing around on me, you're not going to call me by name. You don't want the person to know that I'm on the phone. So Destiny's Child kind of created this way of, I don't know how to explain it. Just saying my name shows me that you love me. And it's a theme after they put out that song that run that it's a theme they created that's still present in R&B music today and I love that constant bullshit kind of is a callback to that. The next song I wanted to get into is Throw It Away. The guitar chords on this track sound so similar to something JD produced for Usher back in the early 2000s and 
it sounded so much like that that I thought it was a sample. Similar to when she sampled You Make Me Wanna. But surprisingly, there is no sample. Anyway, Throw It Away sounds so distinctly 2000s because of those chords. It was so popular to have those bold guitar chords from Usher to Genuine and plenty more. And as someone who loves R&B, especially R&B from that era, it made my ears super happy. This song is just good, period. And again, I love her background vocals on this track. They always seem to just melt so perfectly together. My favorite lines from Throw It, o Throw it Away are, quote, I've been taking on all this baggage, adding on so much weight, had me thinking that I was average when you're really to blame. The last song I wanted to get into is Insane, and it was really hard. I, I had a couple of different songs in mind for top five, for my top five, the fifth one, and Insane ended up winning out. I don't know what it is about this song, but it's just really, really good. Actually, that's a lie. I do know why I take to this song so much. For me personally, it's the hook. It's not that it's life-changing or amazing. It's just honest, I guess. I think we've all had that moment where we had to take a step back and have a conversation with God and say, I'm bugging, help me out here, God, because I've lost it. It's just a really relatable song, and I think that's why it's, it resonates. And in the story that she's been telling on this album, it's kind of her come-to-Jesus moment of saying, I think this, I've allowed this man to, to turn me into something I'm not, and I, I've lost my mind. My favorite lines are, quote, God bless me. God help me. Oh, I think I'm insane. Now, while looking at the credits on this album, I thought it was hilarious that London on the track had so many producer credits and writing edits on songs that she's full-on dissing him on. And, you know, on Over It, they had a lot of good chemistry. I felt like that again on this album. But today, actually, Summer recently revealed that even though London is credited, the, uh, he chose other producers to actually produce the tracks and that the most he did on any of the songs was to tweak a thing or two. So I'm not overly surprised because I know a lot of big name producers do do that. They put their name on it. But a lot of other producers are actually, like lesser known producers are actually making the record. But because he was so involved in over it, I didn't think he would do something like that again. I, I didn't think he would do something like that for this album because she admits on the first one he actually did produce the music. He did put the work in. But I guess that was his way of still being involved in the album and making money off of it without having to actually have direct contact with Summer Walker, because best believe if he actually did make the beats and he was there when she was recording and writing this music, he probably would have felt a way about some of the things she was saying. I mean, on Fourth Baby Mama, I don't know if he has, I don't think he produced that one or has the credit, but I can imagine that's not easy for someone like him to hear and he may not be a huge fan of that record. So it does make sense that I guess he's not, he didn't actually put the work in for this album. To conclude my thoughts on Still Over It, Summer Walker is what today's generation of R&B listeners needed. She stands on her own as an artist, but still pulls from the greats before her. Still Over It proves that not only was Over It not a fluke, but that she's grown as an artist. She knows what works for her, but isn't afraid to grow and try a few new things while maintaining her identity. I'm not afraid to say that Still Not Over It is the best R&B album of the year, and maybe it just might be the best album of the year, period. So moving on from Summer Walker into my next review, my final review is 2.5 by Amine. And this project doesn't leave me with a lot to say. 
Now, because it's just an EP slash project, I'm not going to be too hard on him about it, but nonetheless, it's not a great body of work. The production is redundant and honestly sounds like video game music. I feel like he just chose random beats to rap on and just threw them on a project and handed them to his audience without any real thought or consideration. I don't know if this follows the theme from his 1.5 project, because I didn't start listening to Amine heavily until last year, so maybe his core fan base is satisfied with this body of work. It didn't seem like there was any real effort put into this project and not in a good way. The only real highlight on this project is that Amine can still rap, but we didn't need 2.5 to tell us that. We already knew he could rap. My top tracks from 2.5 are Didi Dum Dada, I believe that's how you pronounced it, Mad Funny Freestyle, and Between the Lines. So I'm going to start off with DDD Dum Dum Dada. I, I feel like I'm having a, a brain like aneurysm trying to read this title because all of the letters are kind of mushed together. I believe it's Didi Dum Dada. So this is one of the standout songs on this project despite its ridiculous title. And it's also one of the only good songs on 2.5 with good production. It's laid back but has some bounce. Amine's verses are dope and I love the melodic cook. My favorite lines are quote, top two and your bitch know my number. Butterfly wings on that ass gon' flutter. Beat on the box like dee dee dum da da. The next song I wanted to get into is Mad Funny Freestyle. Y'all know I love a good freestyle and that's why this is one of my favorite tracks off of the project. It is too short, but Amine makes the most of the time. Mad Funny Freestyle is filled with dope punchlines and fun lines in general. My favorite lines are, quote, fucking all these bitches all up out they chanclatas. Mommy disappointed because we want a sawed off. I'm the African Darth Vader baby. I'm your father. The last song I wanted to get into is Between the Lines. I love the melodic hook, the smooth beat, and Amine, Amine's verses. This stands out from the other songs on this project because of the production. It's vastly different from the rest of the songs on this project, thankfully. And I love the synths. My favorite lines are, quote, I never took a L, so I'm L-less like Tracy. Of course, it's because I love the word play on that. I think I thought that was cool. 2.5 is easily forgettable, but I won't hold it against him. It's certainly a project that could have been kept, though. So, you know I couldn't end the episode without reviewing Smokin' Out the Window by Silk Sonic. And of course, they have done it again. I love this record. I play it as much as I played Leave the Door Open. In fact, I still play Leave the Door Open. It is similar in sound to Leave the Door Open, but it doesn't sound exactly like Leave the Door Open. It just sounds like it belongs on the same body of work as Leave the Door. Bruno and Anderson sound incredible as always, and I love the story they're telling on this song. The story that they're telling on Smoking Out the Window is very similar to a lot of uh, the stories that you would hear on songs in the 70s and 80s from the men of, of that time. I love how DeMille and Bruno Mars produced music that actually sounds like a band created this, considering, you know, Silk Sonic is a band. It, the production really sounds lively, like... You know, Anderson got on the drums, Bruno got on the keyboard, and they created this that way. DeMille always has live instrumentation, and that's a major reason for why he's one of my favorite producers, and I'm glad he's getting more recognition. I also couldn't help but compare this song to one of Bruno Mars's songs. It's called Natalie, and I feel like Smoking Out the Window is kind of like a prelude to 
the story he told on Natalie because Natalie is about a gold digger who runs off with Bruno's money and he's running after her to try to find her and when he gets his hands on her he's gonna kill her and go to jail and smoking out the window is kind of like a prelude to that story of I'm with a woman who I'm realizing is very materialistic she's using me for my money she's got another man she's got a husband and I'm kind of on the side and I'm heartbroken I feel like smoking out the window is like the emotional part of the breakup before she runs off with his money and now he's angry and he wants to kill her and I after I had that realization I went on social media and I kind of looked up on Twitter to see if anybody else came to those conclusions and some people actually did. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who um, drew those comparisons. And I wonder if that's a uh, thought that Bruno had in his mind as him and Anderson Pack and, and DeMille were creating this record. My favorite lines from Smoking Out the Window are, quote, This bitch got me paying her rent, paying for trips, diamonds on her neck, diamonds on her wrist, and also, quote, Baby, why are you doing this to me, girl? Not to be dramatic, but I want to die. And that's what I love about R&B. I love the dramatics. I love the drama of it all. And Anderson Pack really gave that to me on this record. And I also love the way they write. I think that Anderson Pack especially is very good at writing lines that he knows are going to stick. He had them on Leave the Door Open. He had them on Skate. And he has them on smoking out the window. It's been fun kind of picking which verses I prefer. I think that it's really hard with smoking out the window because they both had good lines. Bruno Mars starts off his verse by saying, you know, I have this chick and her badass kids running around my crib like it's Chuck E. Cheese. And then Anderson Pack has the, the don't want to be dramatic, but I want to die line. So it's really hard for me to pick a favorite. I think out of the two, Bruno Mars probably has my favorite on Lee and on Leave the Door Open, Anderson Pack had my favorite. And for Skate, I have to revisit Skate to kind of see. I kind of think it was Anderson Pack on Skate too. Because he had that line about if she was if she was a parking ticket, she'd have fine written all over her, something like that. I, I haven't listened to Skate as much as I listened to Smoking Out the Window and Leave the Door Open. I have to revisit. But that's going to be something I definitely do when listening to the album. This week is figuring out who had my favorite verses on each song because they both are incredible writers. They've also released the track list to their album. There is only two features, Bootsy Collins and Donald Glover. Was it Donald Glover? I could be wrong. Um, but the Beyonce song, the, the much rumored Beyonce song did not make the cut. I do know that there was a collaboration though because the producers involved in this album did say, or the engineer did say that there's a song that exists. I don't know why it never made the cut. Maybe it did and they just didn't actually give us all of the features on the album, but I doubt it. There were rumors about, I think that's why I said Donald Glover, there were rumors about him being featured and Ariana Grande. And Ariana Grande, to me, she could pull off the sound, but it didn't make sense to have her on the album to me for some reason. But I am disappointed that Beyonce is not actually going to be on this song because I feel like that would have been really dope. I think thinking back to the music Beyonce was making early in her career before she actually put out her solo album that had that 70s vibe, even Naughty Girl, the, the Donna Summer sample, like I feel like Beyonce could have pulled that off. So that was disappointing that she didn't make the cut. Either way though, I'm excited for this album and I do hope that we have tons of Silk Sonic albums to come after this as well. So before I end this episode, you know I have to get into the song of the week and the song of the week is of course 
Constant Bullshit by Summer Walker. I have been playing this song, the album period, over and over, but especially the song. I love this record. I already told you I love this record, so I won't repeat myself, but it is a standout on the album. So if you haven't heard this album yet, please listen to Still Over, Still Not Over It, and please listen to the song Constant Bullshit. If you love R&B, you'll really love this record. So we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. I told you I had a lot of stuff to talk about this week. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give the Listen To Me Speak podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you rate your podcasts. If you enjoy this podcast as a whole and you want to keep up with me further and support, you can head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all my social media so that you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm even on YouTube. You can see all of my uh, playlists up on YouTube. And if you want to support me even further, you can donate to my listeners' donations. It would be much appreciated. That can be found on my website, which again is www.listentomespeak.com, or you can find that on my anchor page. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves, and thank you for listening to me speak.